From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. On this special New Year's edition of Mayo Clinic Radio, we take a look back at some of the advances in medicine during the past year. Among them, the treatment of brain cancer, including cancers called gliomas, and the research that may lead to better outcomes. Along with that, the personal story of a cancer scientist who changed the course of his research because of a teenage girl and her battle with brain cancer. And later on the program, I'll be joined by co-host Dr. Pratish Tosh as we explore the human microbiome and how what's living in your gut affects your health and using stool transplants to overcome serious digestive system disorders. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the National Cancer Institute, over 23,000 new cases of brain cancer and central nervous system cancers were diagnosed in the U.S. last year. And of those cases, about 12% were in children and adolescents. Brain tumors, in fact, are the leading cause of death from solid tumors in children. About one-third of all brain tumors are gliomas. They get their name from the gluey supportive structures called glial cells that surround nerve cells and help them to function. Because of the location within the brain, gliomas are often difficult to treat. Well, our guest today is working on ways to attack gliomas by identifying tumor markers that characterize specific types of cancer. He is Dr. Robert Jenkins. Dr. Jenkins is a pathologist and a specialist in laboratory genetics at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program. I'm Dr. Jenkins. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. First of all, how did you get interested in studying gliomas? I've been working on gliomas for almost 25 years. And I began when neurologist at the Mayo Clinic, David Kimmel, came into my office in the pathology department and said he wanted to work on gliomas. And that's when we began. What year was that? 1989. All right. So we'll fast forward to this year when you had, is it your first paper accepted to the New England Journal of Medicine? I have had several papers in okay. the Journal of Medicine, but I, this is the first one where I'm the principal okay. author. And Very prestigious journal, by the, the way. Yeah, I've I mean, heard of it's it. It's a big deal to get a paper. <laughs> I haven't had any in there, in case you, you don't even ask. <laughs> okay, you're, but you're a talk show host, Tom. So, <laughs> All right, well, tell us what was in the paper that was, um, was recognized by the New England Journal. We've been working on adult gliomas. You're going to be talking with uh, Richard Vial later about pediatric gliomas. Um, but one of the problems with adult gliomas is their pathologic diagnosis. So about half of adult gliomas are glioblastoma. The other half are other gliomas. Some of those do really well clinically, and others do very poorly. And the pathologic diagnosis is what puts patients into those clinical groups. Now, neuropathologists often disagree on the diagnosis, the pathologic diagnosis of the tumors. And it obviously is really important because it's predictive. It predicts what kind of therapy the patients get. Very important. But the pathologic diagnosis of these what we call lower-grade gliomas is extremely challenging. And when you say lower grade, you mean slower growing? Slower growing, Mm -hmm. generally slower, but not always. And is that determined uh, a surgery is done to take out a biopsy of the tumor, or how can you tell what type of, of glioma it is? In adults, nearly every person either gets a biopsy or resection or both. Very few tumors are not operated on, at least to get a biopsy to get that pathologic diagnosis. 
So the challenge has been you know, the, pathologist is, the pathology is difficult. This is necessary for their treatment. So how, do we might, how might we improve on that? So my lab has been working on the genetics of gliomas, looking at the DNA of gliomas for over 25 years, and my lab discovered one alteration uh, about 20 years ago. Two other labs discovered two more about five years ago, and we thought that if we just tested those three things, that we'd be able to put the gliomas into DNA categories that would be completely independent of the pathology. So and that turned out to be true, and that's why it got into the New England Journal of Medicine, because by just testing these three markers, we can determine, predict the age of onset, we can predict the survival, we can predict the acquired alterations that the tumors acquire as they evolve, and that is independent of the pathology and the grade. So, in fact, when you know these markers, we can actually put them into definable molecular entities that can be treated differently. In the past, they didn't have the ability to figure out the genome of that tumor? That's been going on now for, you know, the last 30 years, mm-hmm. but now in the last two or three years, we now do genomics. Uh-huh. So now we can completely characterize a tumor. We actually know the parts lists of many tumors, <laughs> okay, why they are what they are. And so we were able to assemble from that parts list three alterations that we thought would be foundational, meaning early in the development of the tumor, way before it was diagnosed, and that might be able to put them into definable molecular entities because tumors are really molecular entities. They just have a pathology, pathologic appearance. They're basically DNA that's gone awry. And so we thought that if we could put them into those groups, we might actually be able to predict things about the tumor. And we were able to predict survival. We were able to with with the groups, we can actually make recommendations about what kind of therapy the patient should get. Um, and that's why it made the New England Journal of Medicine. It actually, from it, 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 the technical term is multivariable analysis. When you cool. do statistical analysis of all the variables, mm-hmm. the most important thing, if you have a grade two or three glioma, is your age and the molecular group. You don't really need to know anything else, just the DNA content and the patient's age. Hmm. So the two things from a patient's standpoint that are truly important here are you can know or have a general idea how long you're going to live with this tumor, right? We can provide prognostic information about how how long a patient can expect to live, and we can also provide predictive information, meaning what kind of therapy they might be recommend their doctor might recommend they get yeah incredible though i mean that you can help direct treatment based on the the pathology of the tumor which we haven't been able to do before you haven't for this particular type of tumor right we've been able to do it in the general categories of the pathologic histologic and pathologic types but those were mixtures of different molecular kinds of tumors which behaved differently. So now we've sorted them into different, we've used a different sorting mechanism. This sorting mechanism is this DNA classification, and it sorts them into purer groups that have pure, you can make better predictions about how the patients will do. I can see how this is a really big deal and why it is in the New England Journal of Medicine, but I want to, because I'm the layperson here, Mm -hmm. for the patients who are listening, what I am hearing uh, is, oh, great, you know a better answer to the question, how long have I got, Doc, Mm -hmm. if you get this diagnosis? What does the future then hold that could make things better for patients who are diagnosed with glioma? Well, the immediate thing that patients can do is they can encourage their physician 
to send their tumor for these tests. How do you go about doing that? Um, <laughs> well, we have the Mayo Medical Laboratories. Very good. And we can, they can be sent to the Mayo Clinic through the Mayo Medical Laboratories, and we will do these tests. In fact, we are rolling out two large tests uh, in, later this summer for this very purpose. Very good. And the so, more you look at, the better you'll get. And the more we do, the better we'll get. And the next thing they can do is they can have the, their physician take a look at the data and make some recommendations about potential therapy. You wanted to, at the end here, uh, recognize the people who worked with you because you said you wanted to bring them along right. with you, and I said, no, I can only do one. So who else helped you with this so research? This was, this was a big effort at the Mayo Clinic. Um, it was my co-investigators are Dr. Dan Lachance, who's in the Department of Neurology, and Dr. Jeanette Alpaso, who's in Health Sciences Research and is a biostatistician. Jeanette is the first author on the paper. Um, this would not have been possible without a very long-term collaboration with a Dr. Margaret Wrench and her group, who's at the University of California, San Francisco. Um, and we both have uh, brain tumor spores. SPORE stands for Specialized Project of Research Excellence. There's not too many of them in the United States, <laughs> only five in brain tumors. And they have one and we have one. And this has been a very productive collaboration between our two groups. Dr. Jenkins is a pathologist and specialist in laboratory genetics at Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Better treatment for gliomas thanks to you and your team. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear from a Mayo Clinic cancer scientist who changed his research focus because of a young girl's cancer. We'll hear about how the cells that girl left behind are being used to fight the disease that took her life. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We've just gotten an update on the state of treatment for brain cancers and what the future may hold for possible cures. Now we turn to a more personal story about a young person who succumbed to brain cancer three years ago. Shannon O'Hara of Rochester, Minnesota, was just 13 years old when she died of an inoperable brain tumor. But thanks to brain cancer cells that Shannon left behind, one Mayo Clinic cancer researcher is working hard to find a better treatment for the kind of tumor that took Shannon's life. That researcher is Dr. Richard Vile, and he joins us now in the studio. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Vile. You're very welcome. Dr. Vile, nice to have you. Nice to be here, thank you. You know, it's such a wonderful story, and I, I have heard it before, but I can't hear it too many times. Let it tell, tell our audience how it was that you became involved with brain cancer research, with, and particularly uh, with Shannon's cells, Shannon's brain cancer cells. Sure. Well, I, I've been at Mayo Clinic for 16 years, and uh, up until 2012, my main interest was in a different type of cancer, cancer called melanoma. You know, that's a, a, an important cancer in and of itself, but uh, in January 2012, I attended Shannon's funeral, um, and Shannon, beautiful little girl, had played uh, tennis with my son, and, you know, we knew Jen, uh, her, her mum and dad, and so on. Not not really well, but... Um, Enough to bring you to her funeral. Absolutely. As were a lot of people in this community, yes. Absolutely. And so um, she changed your life in a way. She really did. I think, you know, um, she was obviously the same age as, as uh, my children, and attending that funeral... You know, makes you think, and you go home, and you you try to put yourself in the uh, appalling position of the parents, and that's just too painful even to to try to do. But it made me think about what what I knew about these other cancers, the res research that I'd been doing, and whether we could start to apply some of what we'd learnt relatively successfully in those other tumours to this uh, this particular type of brain cancer, which affects young children. 
uh, and is almost universally fatal. What kind of tumor did she have? She had something called DIPG, which is a, a tumor which grows in the brain stem, uh, clearly a critical part of, of the body. It's difficult to access uh, and it's difficult to treat with uh, chemotherapies and so on. And because of its location and its size, it was impossible to remove it surgically. So the other treatments that she received that unfortunately were not as effective as they might have been, but, but they aren't in most of these kids, uh, both chemotherapy and, and radiation, but actually, as I recall, lived only nine months from the time of, of diagnosis uh, until her demise. Absolutely. It's, it's because it's so inaccessible to, to surgery uh, and the drugs that we have at the moment really touch it very on, uh, only very uh, inconsequentially. Really. So when she passed on, her tumor, or at least part of her tumor, went to a research hospital. And take us from that point. What I'd been doing or what we've been doing in, a, in our lab was looking at how the immune system can recognize cancers uh, in, in patients. And we looked at... DIPG and the treatments for DIPG, and really very uh, little immune therapy had been tried. So immune therapy, getting the body's own immune system to attack the cancer. That's exactly right. So normally when, when patients have a cancer, that cancer comes from your own cells, and so the immune system really is not designed to recognize uh, your own cells in any in any form because it could be very toxic if it did. But we've, we've and a lot of other people, have found ways that we can re-educate the immune system to start to see cancer cells as different and as foreign. And one of the potential uh, side effects of this is that that therapy should be rather more gentle than chemotherapy, radiotherapy. And so following the funeral, uh, I went and did a lot of reading, spoke to some neurosurgeons and uh, uh, looked into the whole area. And it was clear that this was an underdeveloped area uh, in terms of immunotherapy for brain cancers. And so we started to uh, develop some of, the, some of the approaches that we had been developing for other tumors, but for DIPG and pediatric brain tumors. So as part of uh, Shannon's treatment, we've had sort of run out of, of options at, at most uh, tertiary care centers. And so she had gone to uh, another hospital where an experimental treatment was tried. And it wasn't all that effective, unfortunately. But that's where her cells were initially. And then you asked uh, Jen and Dan, her parents, if, if yeah. we could get some of the cells here? Yeah, exactly. After uh, several months of sort of trying to work out what our strategy would be, we found out or we knew that Shannon shell, Shannon's cells existed uh, and we asked if we could have an aliquot of them from St. Jude's and they were sent. And that's now the the core of our approach to really trying to develop a novel treatment here. Is this right? Are you keeping the tumor alive so it continues to grow? Is that happening? Yeah, we keep the tumor alive. Uh, we grow it in, in culture dishes in, in the lab. Um, so Shannon lives on in 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 this way. Is it a pretty fast growing tumor? I mean, is it easy to, to keep these cells alive and growing? Relatively so. We, we have worked out how to grow them, special medium and so on, and they grow, you know, we can keep millions of cells. Uh, we can freeze them down and we can grow them and, and as I say, freeze them down so that we can keep this going more or less perpetually. And what is your work involved so far? So what have you tried to do that involves the immune system and her cells? So the immune system sees proteins on the cell surface or of, of tumor cells. And our problem is for DIPG, we don't know which of those proteins the immune system really will see optimally. What Shannon's cells have provided us with is a source of all of the proteins 
which are expressed in this type of tumor. And so instead of trying to identify one or two or maybe three and use those in a vaccine-type approach, we're using her cells as in, in the form of what we call a cDNA library. So this is all of the proteins expressed by her cells. We can now present to the immune system, and we can present it in the context of a very powerful immune adjuvant. That's a virus which is very strongly immune-stimulatory. So we've expressed all of her proteins in the context of this virus. And when we put that virus into a patient, the virus sends a very strong danger signal to the immune system and says, hey, this is something that you need to react against. And because the virus is now expressing all of her, all of her different proteins, we can see which of those proteins the immune system, when it's really fired up, can recognize and can start to react against. And once we have uh, been able to do that, once we can identify those proteins, then we can go back and, and stimulate the immune system very specifically against the cancer. So for other children that are in Shannon's position, if you've got 10 families with 10 kids that have got this DIPG brain tumor, would you need to figure out those proteins for each individual patient, or would it be probably the same? We believe that there'll be overlap of those two classes. I think there will be some proteins which are very specific to this type of tumor and which are expressed on all 10 patients' tumors. And then there will be additional proteins which are specific to Shannon's tumor or somebody else's tumor as well. And, and what you could potentially do in some uh, another child who had this cancer is develop a vaccine, maybe based on Shannon cells or this particular patient's cells, produce a vaccine that would fire up the patient's immune system go, to go to kill the tumor. That's exactly right, yeah. To break it down even further, like you said, sh- that there is um, Shannon lives on in this case, and you have a team of people. How many people are working on Shannon's vaccine? So we have uh, a team of six people in the lab who are working on on this brain tumor and uh, trying to develop this sort of vaccine approach. It's it's an amazing story just from one girl's life that <clears throat> that has changed possibly the course of what you are going to study and what these other six people are doing every day. No, certainly it has. I, I you know I wouldn't have got into this disease had I not been to that funeral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a great story, and we wish you all the success for sure. And keep us Thank posted. You. Yeah, no, we want to know your when you've got it. Invite me back, and happy to talk about it anytime. <laughs> all right, the patient is 13-year-old Shannon O'Hara who died of brain cancer in 2012. We've been talking with Dr. Richard Bile his ongoing research using Shannon cells. Thanks, Thanks. Dr. Bile. Thank you very much. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, a stool transplant may not sound as high-tech or as appealing as, say, a heart transplant, but stool transplants are being used to treat some very difficult-to-cure infections. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Recently, the Food and Drug Administration proposed steps to prevent the use of indoor tanning beds. They want to restrict usage to people 18 years of age and older, and they want tanning bed manufacturers and facilities to ramp up safety measures. The FDA reports that their goal is to protect young people from skin cancer as well as other dangers such as eye damage. Mayo Clinic dermatologist Dr. Jerry Brewer says tanning is never a good idea, and more people develop skin cancer because of tanning bed use than those who develop lung cancer because of smoke. 
smoking. In fact, some sources feel that just one session in a tanning bed can increase the chances of developing melanoma by 20%. Now, melanoma is one of the deadliest forms of skin cancer, and Brewer says in melanoma cases happening in young people between the ages of 18 and 29, 76% can be attributed to tanning beds. Dr. Brewer says the best way to prevent skin cancer is to avoid indoor tanning beds and to be smart with exposure to sunlight. And in other news, do you ever get the feeling the whole world is working against you? It's a stressful and tiring way to go through life. But a simple concept called Assume Positive Intent, or API, could help you flip that emotional coin. Dr. Amit Sood is the author of the Mayo Clinic Guide to Stress-Free Living. Assume the person causing your problem really is giving it their best shot. Offer them the benefit of the doubt. Be patient and give him or her a break because that person may be going through something too. It could help you feel better. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae along with co-host Dr. Pratish Tosh. When we hear the word ecosystem, we usually think about a place on Earth like a forest ecosystem or a desert ecosystem. It's a place with plants and animals that are unique to that environment. Though it may be hard to imagine, like our planet, our bodies have ecosystems, too. We have on our skin and inside us billions of living organisms. Scientists call this human ecosystem the human microbiome, and what's in our microbiomes and how we interact with it can affect our health and well-being. Here to talk about just what the human microbiome is and its importance to our health is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Perna Kashyap. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kashyap. Thanks, Stacey, and uh, please appreciate the opportunity. This may be a new topic for a lot of people, so if maybe you can get a little background what is the microbiome, and is that related to what people refer to as good bacteria or a healthy gut? Yeah, is it connected to the hip bone or the leg bone? Where is the microbiome? Well, the microbiome, as um, as you previously mentioned, is within us and on us. So it's it just refers to all the bacteria that are present and all the genetic information they carry along with them. So all it refers to is the bacteria along with their genes, uh, which are present on us or within us. So the gut microbiome lives in the gut, and so it's one of the most diverse ecosystems. The skin microbiome lives in the skin, and so on. And when you refer to good bacteria, that's subjective. Everybody would like to think that their bacteria are the good bacteria, and that's true when they're healthy. So, you know, everybody has their own set of good bacteria, but it's when they turn sick, we have to decide if the bacteria had something to do with it or not. And actually, from an interview we did with you, Dr. Tosh, we know that antibiotics can be part of the reason why the good bacteria turn to bad bacteria. Is there anything else? Oh, uh, there's... Uh, effects of diet, there's effect of environment, there's effect of being in the hospital by itself. There's several factors which can cause a change in your gut bacteria. But these are pretty resilient organs. So even though we try to hit them with antibiotics or bad food, they will spring back. It's occasionally when they cannot spring back to their state of health is when we experience problems. Going on that, now that we're you know, learning a lot more about the microbiome, what kinds of health problems are people thinking maybe potentially 
linked to microbiome disturbances. And- uh, it's, it's amazing that, you know, people um, have realized that the bacteria in our gut can not only affect things within the gut, but outside of it. And, and as you mentioned, it's, it's at this point partly speculative in which we see changes in gut bacteria. But we see these changes in diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, which affects the gut, but also in diseases outside like obesity, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, you name it. And there's been changes in the gut bacteria seen in these diseases. Hold um, on, hold on. <laughs> The the gut bacteria, uh, the healthy biome, has to do with a link to obesity. I mean, can, I can see a disease like multiple sclerosis or something like that, but how is there a link to obesity in there? So it, it's interesting that you bring that up because it, what we don't realize is of all the food that we eat, everything that we cannot digest, the bacteria have the genes to be able to digest that. So they are a metabolically active organ, and, and the better they are at extracting energy, the more energy we can gain from the food we eat. Is this why I hear about a healthy gut from the yogurt ads. You have to have a healthy gut, and that's why you have to eat yogurt, or so they say. But is that what a healthy gut means? Well, a healthy gut is a well-adapted gut. Okay. Um, some people can use the extra calories that the bacteria are providing, and some people may not need those extra calories. So, again, in some people, the healthy gut would be what they have, and, and it's a state of equilibrium. In others, uh, those overactive bacteria may, in fact, be unhealthy. So to go back to the obesity link then, if they don't have a healthy gut or if their microbiome is not as healthy as it could be, that is linking to or helping to cause the obesity in that person? It's like... Anything else, it's probably one of the factors which can influence the outcome there. So we've seen people with genetic predisposition. uh, We've seen environmental factors. We've seen other things which can cause or promote obesity. And the gut bacteria are probably one other player in that game which can contribute to obesity. Yeah, I know that when we're seeing, we, you know, there's a lot of controversy about the use of antibiotics in animals. Yeah. And you know, they, they know that when you give antibiotics to animals, and you're, you're presumably altering their microbiome, that, that they get bigger. Yeah, do, is that possibly the same thing for humans? And it, and it possibly is, uh, because there's now data at least suggesting that early antibiotic use, probably in childhood, could lead to later obesity. While, again, this is more from animal studies, but like you mentioned, this has been well known in the veterinary field that if you give antibiotics, you're going to get more bang for your buck in terms of uh, the meat. Oh, that is fascinating. Uh, has anyone looked at, well, s- swapping it between a skinny person or a skinny yeah. animal and a, and a larger animal? They've actually done it in humans, uh, where they've swapped uh, bacteria from lean donors into, into obese. While this was a pilot and a small number study, it was very interesting that they were able to show improvement in glucose homeostasis. Not weight loss yet, but but definitely an improvement in glucose uh, homeostasis. It changed so, their blood sugar. And it, what are you what are you swapping out in the two? <laughs> in the, what are you doing in this biome swap here? Well, simply took the samples from lean donors and infused them into obese donors. So this is like a stool transplant. Exactly. Thankfully, well, later this show we'll have <laughs> yeah. Dr. Sahil Khanna on talking a little bit more about stool transplants. You know, now I think you know why is it that we're only recently thinking about or doing research on the microbiome? And uh, did people not think it was important before, or do we just not have the technology to look into it before? Yeah, people have always known that the bacteria are present and they do important things for us. But like you mentioned, we just did not have the technology. I mean, sequencing technology has just risen over the last decade, which we had never imagined. So now we are able to sequence all of these bacteria. The problem is not all of these bacteria can be grown in culture. And so our major limitation was not being able to identify bacteria 
which we couldn't culture. Now with the advent of next generation sequencing technology, we can sequence the bacteria even if we can't culture them. And so our, our capacity to be able to identify the role of these bacteria has just expanded enormously. So I, I have learned that, you you know, a tumor, if someone has cancer, the tumor has got its own genetics, just like the patients has their own genetics. So the biome has its own genetics? Yeah, the biome uh, carries genes which do a lot of things for us. They make vitamins for us. They derive energy. They make short-chain fatty acids for us. So they do a lot of things for us. So you mentioned obesity or multiple sclerosis or just having a healthy microbiome. If it's If it's damaged when you're a child, from too much antibiotics. Can you heal your microbiome or is it just if you break it when you're younger or at some point that you're just a damaged microbiome the rest of your life? Well, that's what most of us and other people are working on is trying to see how we can restore uh, a disturbed microbiome. So that's where the field is leading to in terms of developing therapies now that we realize that the microbiome is important for us. Perna, where do you think this is going to be taking off? There seems to be a fairly new field of study. What do you think this is going to look like in 10, 15 years? I think a, a large proportion of therapeutics are going to be derived from being able to target the, the, back, the gut bacteria or bacteria at other sites. We already see that in the number of new startups which have come focused on the microbiome. And we already see studies in phase two and phase three, which suggest that this is not just all talk. This is going to be one of the new next generation therapies to treat human disease. We've just started making these links and in some of these diseases we don't even know if the biome is just an innocent bystander or it in fact mediates the disease. But potentially if we can find a link of how the bacteria are mediating either worsening of the disease or onset of the disease, we could potentially reverse that. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Kashyap. We've been talking about the human microbiome with Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Perna Kashyap. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, a stool transplant may not sound as high-tech or as appealing as, say, a heart transplant, but stool transplants are being used to treat some very hard-to-cure infections. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae, along with Dr. Pratish Tosh. In today's world of high-tech medicine, transplants for most body parts, from hearts and lungs to hips and knees, have become commonplace. There's one type of transplant that's perhaps not so widely known, but which is proving effective in treating some very challenging diseases. We're talking about stool transplants, and yes, it is what it sounds like. Stool transplants take fecal material from a donor and place it in the gut of a recipient. The goal is to establish healthy bacteria in the recipient digestive system that has been compromised by serious infections. Here to talk about stool transplants, Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, Dr. Sahil Khanna. Welcome to the program, Dr. Khanna. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here. You know, we had Purna Keshap here earlier and uh, really setting us up, talking about the, the microbiome. And you're on the other end of things, sort of the, <laughs> the business end of things, if you will, actually replacing the microbiome or redoing the, the fecal microflora. When we're talking about these stool transplants, what kind of diseases have been shown to be useful? For. So the one disease that has been shown to be the most useful for is an infection of the intestines called Clostridium difficile or C. difficile infection. It's also more popularly known as C. diff. It was a bacteria that was first thought to be grown in the lab in 1935 and named Clostridium difficile because it was difficult to culture in the lab. And now the name still holds true because it's very difficult to treat in, in a lot of situations. So how do patients get C. diff? 
we all harbor bacteria in our colons, probably about 500 different kinds of bacteria, anywhere between 100 trillion bacterial cells harbor in our colons. It's like a good army of bacteria that protects us from the bad pathogens. When patients take antibiotics, up to 1 in 20 of those can get an infection called Clostridium difficile or C. diff because those antibiotics destroy the good flora or the healthy microbiome in the colons. That's where one picks up C. diff from their environment and the C. diff tends to stay in the colon, produce toxins and cause diarrhea. Now, I know previously we would try to treat these C. diff infections with more antibiotics. Uh, how successful is that? That's a very good question. When we get an infection that's due to antibiotics, our first line is actually to treat it antibiotics. About 80% of people get rid of this infection forever just with one course of antibiotics. And about 95% probably get rid of it with more than one course of antibiotics. But there's about a 5-odd percent patient population that is not able to get rid of this infection with just antibiotics because, guess what? The antibiotics that are used to treat C. diff also kill the good microflora or the good bacteria in the colon. Gotcha. Is that where you come in? That's where I see a lot of patients in my clinic who've had this infection called C. diff three or more times, and the risk of this infection coming back once we stop their treatment is 60% or higher. And the only way to get rid of this infection to come back is to replace their good bacteria with somebody else's, a procedure called stool transplant or fecal transplant. How did this idea ever come into somebody's mind to do a stool transplant? So it goes back to the year 1958, where we didn't even know C. diff was a cause of human diarrhea, but there were four reports of fecal transplantation performed by a surgeon for a condition called pseudomembranous colitis. We now know that pseudomembranous colitis is caused due to C. diff, mm. but at that time, he had an idea that maybe if I give them, give these patients some good bacteria, I should be able to get rid of this. It's been a long time since 1958, though. How come so many people have never even heard of a stool transplant? until I certainly hadn't until maybe a year ago. That is correct. So C. diff was first thought to be a cause of human diarrhea in 1978. And in the first 10, 15 years of knowing C. diff, it wasn't that big of a medical problem. The incidence wasn't that high, and it wasn't causing so much recurrence as it is now. Oh. I think with our population aging having more other medical illnesses and getting more antibiotics, this tends to become a bigger problem. In addition, the bacteria itself is becoming stronger and it's actually mutated into forms that produces more toxins. So the bacteria is becoming smarter and stronger and our defenses against the bacteria are probably going lower. So with these there's a more difficult and more prevalent C. diff infections, and you're saying that if someone has it over and over again, it's really hard to get rid of, how effective is this, you know, fecal transplantation? Fecal transplantation is surprisingly more than 90 to 95% effective oh in God. getting rid of infection forever in most patients. In clinical series, in our experience, and also in clinical trials published uh, from Europe and other places in the world, by giving one or more than one fecal transplant, you're able to get rid of this infection 95% of the times. So that is tremendous. Now, when we're talking about fecal transplant, I can imagine uh, people listening thinking, wow, that's great, but that's gross. And they should probably think, I better hurry up and finish my breakfast because right. this is about to get to a place I don't want to hear. But how exactly do you perform a fecal transplant? The first step is one has to find a donor to be able to donate stool. Just like there are blood donors, there are also stool donors that are out there. How do you know that their stool or their fecal matter is healthy? It's tested before it goes in? Absolutely. So 
Donors for fecal transplant need to be young, healthy people who have minimal medical conditions, almost have no medications on their list, and have not had any other illnesses like allergies, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease. We screen them for a whole battery of infections and other diseases that can be associated with altered flora. Simple diseases like diabetes, being overweight, Depression are all associated with altered flora. So somebody who has to be a stool donor has to be pristinely healthy. We check them for infections in their blood. They get screened for HIV, chronic hepatitis, syphilis, and all infections that can potentially be transmitted. In addition, we screen their stool for infections, including Clostridium difficile and other things that could be infections in one person but colonize another person. So there's a battery of tests that these donors undergo, including a rigorous history and physical examination before they can become a stool donor. Wow, that is uh, seems seems uh, quite extensive. <laughs> but I need to know. <laughs> I'm just how do how do they how do they do this? How does the patient get the stool inside of them? What do you do? So there are many ways to do that, and the most proven uh, and commonly used way is d- with a colonoscopy. Okay. So the way it is done is once one identifies somebody to be a donor, and the donor passes all the screening tests. And we have the donors collect stool in a clean stool collection container. The stool collection container is then brought to the laboratory. And there are two ways to process it. One way to process it to use it, what we call as fresh. We process the stool. We blend it. In our system, we use a blender called a stomacher. And we process the stool in normal saline. And it's kept on ice and can be used within six hours of its processing. There is another way that we do here at Mayo Clinic where we have the ability to have a frozen stool bank. We process the stool anaerobically, meaning we preserve most of the bacteria in the stool. And we add some preservatives that we can freeze the stool for a period of up to six months. And if we have a patient who needs a fecal transplant, we take the stool out of the freezer and are able to use it. Patients who undergo the fecal transplant in our setting have to undergo a preparation for a colonoscopy. It's like any other colonoscopy somebody would have. And during the colonoscopy, we put in the processed stool into their cecum. That's the last part of the colon where the small and large intestine connect with each other. Our experience, other people's experience has shown that this is, as I said, more than 90 to 95% effective, but most people get better within one to three days and they don't get the infection back again. That's tremendous. And does insurance cover this? Most insurance companies do not have a problem covering this. Very rarely we have to do a prior authorization letter with insurance companies. Studies have shown that actually fecal transplant is probably more cost effective than using antibiotics over and over again to treat this infection. So even though the insurance companies might be on board, how about the patients? How do they feel about getting donor stool? This infection tends to be so debilitating, it tends to people to lose their jobs because they can't go back to work and function there. It makes people hospitalized. And this is not like your usual run-of-the-mill diarrhea that somebody gets from eating something bad from the supermarket. This diarrhea really debilitates people. And the acceptance for fecal transplant actually has been really good. Very rarely one would see somebody who has an ick factor with a fecal transplant, but on the flip side, it's ickier to have diarrhea all day, all night long, and have abdominal pain. And when you hear that 90 to 95% success rate, that has to turn them around pretty quickly. That does. And most patients actually come seeking fecal transplant when they've had this infection a few times. And where is this going in the future? In the future, there are lots of different ways of doing fecal transplants that are going to be coming. There are enemas that will be studied, and there is a pill form that is being studied right now, which could replace the colonoscopy route for fecal transplants.
Wow. We've been talking about stool transplants with Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, Dr. Sahil Khanna. Thanks for being on the program with us today, Dr. Khanna. Thank you very much for having me on. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.